Hello, I'm Charlie. And I'm Tom. We were two members of at least three bands during the late 90s and early 2000s. We went to school together. We worked together. We acted in movies and plays together. We travelled to some weird places. And we've met some unusual and interesting people. And we've explored almost every underground music venue in London and made a lot of memories along the way. The Recollective is where we share those stories, songs and memories. We hope you enjoy it. Good evening and welcome to the Recollective Podcast. My name's Charlie and as ever I'm joined by my very good friend Tom. Tom, how are you? I'm very well, thank you Charlie. It's delightful to be here in my cool basement on this hot day to be talking about a subject very close to my heart and my past. I'm quite excited about this one because we're talking grunge and when I met you I thought you were the authority, the font of all knowledge on the subject of grunge. I still do. Uh, and I've been frantically trying to do bits of research in the last few days just to try and get my level of questions up to a certain standard so that you can fly with all the knowledge you have on the subject. I think I might disappoint you on some uh, fronts there because I've realised going into this, you know, how you know, how little of the original history, how little of it I really know. But it's been a, a fantastic dive into the past. So I'm looking forward to talking about stuff I thought I knew, stuff I didn't know, songs I never heard as well as songs I've heard far too many times. Grunge is this wonderfully evocative word. Um, it was attributed to, was it Bruce Pavitt of um, Sub Pop Records? Yeah, yeah. And uh, he yeah, used it apparently in a, you know, an article about Green River, I think, which is uh, one of the early grunge bands, which we may, may talk about a little. I believe the quote was, gritty vocals, roaring martial amps, ultra-loose grunge that destroyed the morals of a generation. Yeah, it's, it's funny because that quote is a bit weird the way it's in the past tense, don't you think? Like he wrote this in 1986 or 7 or something about a scene that didn't even yet exist. And somehow it's already destroyed the morals of a generation. <laughs> Famously, um, Bruce Pavitt was a... He was a writer of zines and a muso and a collector of records and, you know, a real scenester, wasn't he? Yes, absolutely. And you, you sent me a link to this fantastic podcast, actually, which That's I think we'll, we, will, we, will, we will refer to several times um, about the founding of Sub Pop Records, which, of course, is the, is the kind of central indie label of Seattle at that time. I mean, where do we even begin with this? So, Well, let's get our definitions in the first yeah. instance. So when I, not knowing the, the, the area of music as well as you did, when I think of grunge, I, I started going to bands that I now subsequently don't think of as grunge, but I think of as alternative American rock. Um, and grunge is very much a subset of alternative rock, isn't it? Yes, I guess so. Um, but I think for me, and uh, as, as, as for you, and probably for many people, they, they kind of came at the same time. And uh, or, or those, those terms started being used. And yeah, I guess grunge is a form of alternative rock, but it, it's almost, I think, the form that kind of gave genesis to that term and that idea, because it was different from the, the metal, the hardcore, the punk, the hard rock, these kind of different terms you hear associated with different kinds of rock in the, in the 80s, basically, and going back to the 70s. Okay, well then let me give you a little uh, quiz. Are Smashing Pumpkins grunge? No, I think they're not. And uh, of course, for me, they they were effectively part of the same 
um, experience. So I started listening to them around the same time I started listening to grunge bands. But they're, well, they're not a Seattle band, which is one. Um, and they don't really sound like those bands. And I think there's something about their sensibilities in terms of the production, the precision, the, the sheen, the, the, the desire that's palpable when you listen to the songs or Billy Corgan talking to create this incredibly polished, monstrous stadium rock. And that isn't what Grunge was, was really like or really about, at least in the beginning. Let me give you another question then. So in a past episode, we played Rage Against the Machine. Are they Grunge? Uh, again, same thing. So I, I hadn't even thought about them in relation to this episode, although, again, they came into my uh, life, my knowledge at the, around the same time. I don't really know where they're from. They were certainly part of the alternative rock scene. Yeah, but not I wouldn't call them grunge. Yeah. So we're starting to basically narrow in largely around Seattle and we're talking what late 80s and into the early 90s. That's right. Um and of course when you listen to things like that sub pop podcast or or read about stuff, it goes right back to the mid 80s really. But it's only it's around 86 87 that they found the sub pop label and that um Pavit uses that term grunge. Uh but of course, it's only really in 1990-91, it starts to get international attention. So the Seattle music scene is bubbling up there through the late 80s. But people outside of the area don't, don't really know about it, right? And then famously, Everett True, melody maker journalist, writes an article for the influential British music press. And that sort of takes things to another level. Rather like... Britpop, though, there's four kind of horsemen of the apocalypse, four leading lights um, of the grunge scene. Who are bands, you <laughs> I think, well, it's relatively, in terms of popularity at least, um, without too much room for dispute. It's Nirvana, it's Pearl Jam, it's uh, Soundgarden, and it's, well, I guess Alice in Chains would be the suede equivalent of... Um, <laughs> yeah, I quite like that analogy that that's that was the one i guess that's hanging in the balance as the fourth one because alice and chains were big but then they came to a bit of a sticky end and um weren't as long-lived or as monstrously successful um but yeah i think that captures the biggies pretty well i mean what's really interesting is that they some of them were much more present at the beginning of that scene than others um and soundgarden in particular and this is why moving towards uh the first song, the first track I'm going to be playing is a Soundgarden number, even though it's not by any means an early one. Soundgarden had recorded two or three albums before they were known really outside, far outside of the scene. But just on what you said about the big four, we should stress, this is important listeners, that we mm -hmm. aren't going to be playing Nirvana and Pearl Jam today, partly because they've had quite a bit of play in earlier podcasts and they probably will again. And of course, you know, these are two of my favourite bands. I could I could talk about them and play them endlessly, but we thought we'd do something a bit different. Um, well, instead of yeah. prattling on for much longer, let's do some more prattling between songs and have our first number. What are you going to play for us? Who are you saying is prattling? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I just need to say, so this is, I'm starting from where I first, this was, was a really like a moment of, revelation for me which was i had a cassette that was made you know a mixtape of course uh as the, the classic 90s format um of basically grunge bands and some of the stuff was 
um, yeah, not necessarily grunge. I think Rage Against the Machine was on there. Uh, but it had a whole bunch of songs by Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, other bands as well, like Faith No More, um, which, again, I wouldn't count as grunge. But it just blew my mind. And I went to Paris, no, Calais, on a day trip with my sister <laughs> and a friend, and I listened to this tape again and again and again. So Soundgarden was one of the bands on there. Chris Cornell's voice, I mean, just extraordinary when you first hear it. And the song I'm going to play now is a song of Bad Motorfinger, their 1991 album. So I'm jumping ahead. They'd made two or three albums by this point. And this song, you know, I, I was at school and people were starting to form bands and everyone was just kind of in awe of the, of the drumming in this song, of the driving, menacing nature of the musicianship. And I remember one of my friends is in a band and his drummer could play Jesus Christ pose. They're like, this guy can play Jesus Christ pose. And it was just this kind of legendary totemic song. Um, yeah, so let's hear a bit of it. It's long. We don't have to have it all. But we have to hear the way it builds with these kind of increasing layers of guitars and drums into something kind of bonkers.
so um, it rumbles on for quite a bit. Uh, there's another bit at the end that's worth turning up for again because it turns into a kind of different kind of rock song briefly. But um, yeah, hearing this kind of stuff in 1992, which was really when I first heard all those grunge bands, and, and basically all I'd listened to before that was the Beatles and Sting and the Police. Mm. It was pretty pretty mind-blowing experience. Chris Cornell's voice is like a, a, an operatic sound from the dark side. It's Everyone understands who knows about rock music that he's an iconic vocalist. I think his voice here sounds almost powerful than it ever did afterwards. You know, we talk about the stuff that became very commercially successful with Audio Slave and the later Soundgarden stuff, but this is just banshee-like and so vital and uh, piercing. And it's not just the drums that are iconic in this, the bass line would be pretty pleased to be able to play that as well. Yeah, I mean, this this bit here is, is a kind of bizarre segue into a different kind of Soundgarden sound, but like with slightly different rhythms and weird stuff going on. And, and Soundgarden are obviously very well known for like alternative tunings, strange time signatures. But for most of this song, they don't do any of that. It's just like literally just you know, and it, and it is so simple. And I think hearing songs like this, even though it's complex in terms of the drums and everything, um, the riff, you know, is just dead simple. And it hearing songs like that gives you confidence you can do that. I think with songs like, I don't know, Stasiland or something, you know, where you just slam out some heavy notes. Uh, it's hearing songs like this that makes you realize you could do that. But of course, you know, this also came out of a jam. It's it's an interesting song because you can kind of hear that, right? It's not a song that was written by Chris Cornell or Kim Thayil, who wrote a lot of the music, the guitarist. It's one of the few songs credited to all four of them. And um, apparently the, the drummer and bass player just started jamming this mad stuff. Kim Thayil didn't really know what was going on. So he just started playing all this screechy stuff. Cornell starts wailing and it's, you know, as a band, we also had those moments very different mm. kinds of songs where something would just kind of come out of the ether into this kind of extraordinary birth of a song. Shall I bring it back up here for the conclusion? I think it's just a load of noise now, to be honest. <laughs> a lot of very nice noise. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a nice a nice start to this because um yeah so putting grunge into context which we started doing in the beginning, um everyone knew about it globally because of the commercial success of releases such as Nirvana's Nevermind, Pearl Jam's Ten, uh to an extent Bad Motorfinger Soundgarden album, but also Alice in Chains Dirt and um and even potentially the Stone Temple Pilots core. Um, but there was a whole pre-scene in terms of, you know, what the, the folks in Seattle knew um, and what the rest of the world would soon discover of all bands like uh, uh, Green River and Malfunction and U-Men and Skin Yard and, and, and ones like that. And they all seem to be, they all seem to share members and uh, have brothers and yeah, <laughs> be, be quite incestuous. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I mean, it's funny because Seattle was, it's not a small place, is it? But, and there were a lot of bands, right? I mean, there's one thing I read in a History of Grunge book that I've dabbled in in the last 24 hours. Um, You know, there were bands that got cut out of the singles soundtrack, and we'll come to the film Singles in a moment, who, it was just devastating for them because they went from being on the list to be on the soundtrack. So very much part Mm. of the scene, up there with Mudhoney and all those bands on the soundtrack, to someone making a decision the minute they weren't on it and then that kind of sunk them you know so and there were loads of bands that didn't kind of pick up that attention so it was a big scene but you're right there was like a core of bands and um you know the weird thing is that we discovered them all and i say we being pretty much anyone probably in the uk or anyone outside a kind of hardcore music fan who would know about the seattle scene we discovered them retrospectively and you kind of track back through the bands you know the members who were in earlier bands and it's it's kind of a wonderful experience. So I, I, I've actually, I don't think I've ever heard Malfunction, but Malfunction was um, the band in which Andy Wood was a singer um, and his brother was in the band. Uh, oh no, his brother was in, yeah, his brother was in the band. And Green River was two guys who subsequently were in Pearl Jam, Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard, and Mark Arm, who subsequently became the singer in Mudhoney. Um, but Green River was supposed to be the big, band to launch Sub Pop Records, right? So they had recorded a kind of extended EP, I guess. I don't think it was really an album, or maybe it was considered an album. And um, they were one of the bands that was ex- really exciting people. Them and Soundgarden were there right at the beginning. And then Green River splits up just as Sub Pop's launching their record. Um, but what happens then is the two guys from Green River join Andy Wood, who left Malfunction, to form a band called Mother Love Bone. And Mother Love Bone is a very interesting band. You see, I'm talking like an American now. I'm, I'm calling a band in the singular. Mother Love Bone is a really interesting band. Whereas in, <laughs> in British English, we normally say ah, but anyway. Um, so this band, Mother Love Bone, is very different from the bands on the wider Seattle scene. It, they don't always sound like grunge. There's a kind of hard rock edge but they're also a bit glam and sometimes a bit sort of i don't know almost like psychedelic rock or something but mother love bone came to a very tragic end early and they would have been one of the big bands of the scene like probably really big because they recorded a full album um and then andy wood dies of a heroin overdose to cut, cut a long story short so you know, for bands, for people who loved Pearl Jam and, and Pearl Jam were the band that I, you know, came to kind of first, even before Soundgarden in a way. Um, Mother Love Bone was the precursor to that band. And so you'd go out and buy the Love and Mother Love Bone record. And this track I'm going to play next is um, this really very iconic classic Mother Love Bone song. It recurrently comes up in singles. It's a slow ballad. It's written by Andy Wood about his girlfriend, uh, this woman um, whose name, what was her name? It evades me, but uh, oh yeah, Zana Lafuente. And um, Mm. apparently they had this incredibly tempestuous relationship, right? Where they would literally beat each other up and people would talk about seeing Andy Wood with like bruises and cuts all over his face. (laughs) And in her recollection, she's like, yeah, it was a bit of fun, you know, we would just wrestle. But it was obviously quite dark as well because he was developing a very bad heroin addiction. And this this song, Chloe Dancer, Crown of Thorns, is two songs spliced together. So the first part, Chloe Dancer, is about Zana, who apparently was going to be a stripper or a table dancer to support the band for a while. And then Crown of Thorns, this song that's spliced on, is about their breakup. 
Now, together, it's very, very long, but I think we can listen to Chloe Dancer and the first bit of Crown of Thorns, perhaps. And then talk about what happened next. So we're now in Crown of Thorns and we can probably talk for a bit, but it's worth kind of bringing it back up for the finale of Crown of Thorns. So I still find it a very kind of beautiful, haunting song. And it's, it's kind of poignant the more you know about what went on. Um, so Andy Wood was this kind of really like nuts, like very kind of camp flamboyant figure. His voice is very different to anything else on the grunge scene. It doesn't have the power of a Cornell or a Bed or a Cobain. It's not one of the great voices, but it's very distinctive. And they were obviously gathering a huge amount of interest in Seattle around 1989, 1990. And uh, Andy Wood was also Chris Cornell's flatmate. 
More of that later. You want to bring it up now? Nope, we can talk some more. <laughs> I'll bring it up more at the end. So I think what this points to is that grunge, whilst a great marketing term and a way of kind of drawing a circle around the Seattle scene, it doesn't musically have a great definition because you might think of you know screeching banshee-like vocals and slightly discordant guitar sounds but there's quite a lot of room for maneuver in that description yeah and actually i think that's what makes it a bit more interesting than it might appear at first you know if you just heard the big hits by pearl jam nirvana whatever you'd be like okay you can see why it was kind of influential but maybe not that much depth uh, and variety but actually there was other stuff going on so you know Soundgarden much as I love them and you know incredibly talented musicianship and Cornell's voice is amazing but they were also just channeling a lot of 70s rock really Sabbath Led Zeppelin not in massively you know world changing ways although they were mm. original but then when you throw in also in bands like this um, and think about how they mix, and they did mix, literally swapping members and evolved into something different. It, it's a lot richer. There was an insight in the uh, documentary I saw earlier today called Hype, that um, kind of bands used to s skip out Seattle when they toured the uh, the West Coast because it was just too far up the line, so, uh, so to speak. And um, as such, the bands, they didn't think that they had a shot of major record label success and that's kind of contributed to this do-it-yourself spirit or this sense of it actually being about the music rather than the fame um, and that's what I quite like about the grunge sound I know because um, clearly the luminaries go on to, to achieve international success but there's still like this this kind of garage band feel about a lot of it. Yeah and Seattle was really not where it was at you know like I think there was a sense that California, for obvious reasons really, was that the center of the music scene and, and LA had all this attention. And Seattle's really this backwater, like a really weird place. If you watch any of the many documentaries about Cobain, particularly, which I have, you know, they always present Seattle as this strange place right up in the North Washington state, rainy, a bit, almost a bit kind of inbred feeling. <laughs> but of course, in terms of a music scene, that inbredness is very productive. And this is pre, well, is it pre Microsoft and Amazon? And because Seattle's obviously a very wealthy place now, isn't it? Yeah. No, I mean, I guess that was all going on. But yeah, it's an interesting one. And like Frasier and all that. That's Seattle, isn't it? That kind of presentation. Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, Starbucks was there, but it was very small. But the other thing that's interesting is that Jimi Hendrix was from Seattle. Yes. So there's a, you know, that. It's obviously a very significant musical legacy. Let's just listen to the outro now. Which suddenly sounds more like grunge.
<laughs> no big surprise at the end there. Classic uh, rock ending. So do you think Andy Wood would have maybe been part of the pantheon of these great singers that uh, we know today? I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think he was a, an amazing singer on one level, um, but he was incredibly distinctive. And, he you know, the band that was forming behind him, which was basically Pearl Jam, different drummer and Mike McCready wasn't in it. But, the, you know, uh, there's, a, there's some big tunes actually on the Muddle of Burn album. You know, that, that's obviously a more unusual one because of the extremely slow burn. But I think it would have been up there. It would have been up there. It wouldn't have been as big as Nirvana. Uh, and probably not as big as Pearl Jam. And then Pearl Jam came in and it was like, delib- you know, a very different kind of vocal. And I think, though, I, w- I think the fact that they came close, you know, big labels were involved, about to sign up Mother Love Bone. It was about to be massive, probably gave the band members the hunger to keep that momentum and make sure that Pearl Jam was, you know, really big, even though they probably wouldn't admit that. <laughs> so it's probably worth considering why, um, you know, his story is not, unfortunately, an isolated incident in terms of this scene, heroin addiction, and was it suicide or an overdose? I think it was just an overdose. Yeah, so it wasn't like Cobain um, or Chris Cornell. Yeah, I mean, there are, unfortunately, a number of names who, who are no longer with us from this scene. Um, and do you think it's do you think it's something to do with substance abuse, or do you think there's something around the music and the fact that they were they were dealing with kind of socially conscious, angst-filled themes that took them into themselves? I don't know. I mean, I I I have to. I don't know anything about, for example, Andy Wood as a person. You know, that's my interest in Mother Love Bone was just like it was the precursor to Pearl Jam, and uh, you know there. Are, it's obviously no, it can't be a coincidence that you had all this going on. And obviously it's quite prevalent in the music business. Um, but yeah, I mean, of course there was a lot of angst. There was, it, I don't think it was a great place to be. I mean, there was a lot of people who were just like probably struggling to kind of have a good life in Seattle at that time with someone like Cobain. And I know also Mike McCready, guitarist from Pearl Jam, who had a big heroin problem. There were also health reasons, right? These kind of severe stomach cramps and, Crohn's mm. disease and all this stuff. People were sort of self-medicating as well, but it doesn't really explain the general pattern. I, I don't know. It's a big question. Yeah. Um, Not something we we <laughs> actually know much about, <laughs> thankfully. No, thankfully um, our band never we never went there. Uh, but yeah, obviously, I think, other, I think I the worst we did was stay up and have too many beers. But then we did share rehearsal room and gig spaces and even a guitar once in my case with bands like the libertines so mm. you know that was going on but um yeah back to seattle so the next song is again your choice and um well yeah. before you introduce it i remember being at camden school for girls must have been 96 we were in a production of the real inspector hound um and um I think I mentioned in a naive fashion. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I really like Pearl Jam because I think I'd just come from South Africa and you know, obviously we didn't have the internet and the, the albums that may have made it there were, I think, basically only Pearl Jam and Nirvana. And you were like, well, if you like Pearl Jam, you'll love Temple of the Dog. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, ooh, what's Temple of the Dog? So, Tom, what is Temple of the Dog? Right. So that was possibly an inaccurate thing to claim. But um, 
Maybe I'm misremembering it, so I'm sure you wouldn't have made no, no, it no. inaccurate. I'm sure no, I'm sure I would have said that, but uh it's not necessarily Yeah, I mean well I mean it it is basically Pearl Jam, but with Chris Cornell singing. So yeah, if you like Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, then you would probably like Temple of the Dog. But Temple of the Dog, I feel like I I, I have to play because it it's so evocative of that time for me. You know, I can literally remember being in people's bedrooms and you know this just listening to this um in 92 or 93 and this album is a tribute to andy wood so andy wood dies of a heroin overdose and he's chris cornell's flatmate chris cornell is um understandably disturbed by this devastated they were really good friends um you know it's an incredibly tight scene like you said and he pens a lot a bunch of songs for andy wood now at that time obviously the mother love bone guys are there andy's band also distraught but they're also in the process of trying to form a new band and as i mentioned in the last podcast on drums jack irons uh, a former red hot chili peppers drummer had handed a cassette of some demos made by stone gossard and jeff Mem- former members of pearl jam jack irons handed this consent to some surfer dude he know from san diego called eddie vedder so eddie vedder comes to record some demos in seattle he's not from seattle and in the process, Chris Cornell is making Temple of the Dog. So everyone's doing everything together. And the reason I'm playing this song specifically, because most of Temple of the Dog is Cornell singing with the Mother Love Bone slash Pearl Jam backing, basically. And Matt Cameron on drums, who was the drummer from Jesus Christ Post and is now the drummer in Pearl Jam. <laughs> so it continues to be <laughs> incestuous. But um, in this song, Cornell opens. I mean, it's... In some ways, it's a bit of a droning song. It's simple. I still like it, like the simplicity of the little guitar part, the hook. Uh, But Cornell does the first verse. And then sort of about one minute, 15 seconds in or something, the drums come in and this new voice comes in singing the same thing as the first verse, basically. And it's Eddie Vedder. So this song is almost like this kind of introduction of Vedder to the world. Like no one knew who who he was. He wasn't from Seattle. He was just up there to record some demos with these guys. It's, it's like a debutante <laughs> and here it's presented. <laughs> and I just, I love that moment for, uh, the you know, having the two voices in one song, that moment when Vedder comes in and then the choruses where he's doing the low bit because Chris Cornell was like, you can do these bits better than me. And Chris is screaming like a banshee in the background as, as usual. So it's a very special song for like many reasons. Should we hear it? <laughs> Bye. 
to make out the difference between Eddie Vedder and Chris Cornell at the beginning. I wasn't sure who was singing the opening. And It's it's funny you should say that because um, uh, I remember one time, to, to me it's, it's very, very clear now, but I remember um, one time listening to this and I still heard it loads of times, but I was a bit kind of under the influence of something and listening to this song in some friend's bedroom and just being like, reversing them in my mind. I was like, this could be Eddie this bit, and that could be Chris Cornell. I don't know who's who. But no, it's definitely it's definitely Chris in the beginning. I mean, clearly the screaming bit at the end, it's, no, no. you know which one's Chris Cornell. But And the deep, when Eddie's doing the deep register and Chris yeah, Cornell's yeah. singing the higher bit, then then it's really obvious. But the first, was it two verses? I, I, yeah. I was messing with my mind. I didn't That's know which the, one to was the, To the untrained ear, or the uh, inebriated, uh, under the influence of something ear. It does sound like that, but yeah, it's um, it's definitely Chris Cornell in the first verse. But yeah, I mean, they're singing exactly the same thing in exactly the same register. But mm. uh, it's partly also, I mean, there's a video for that song, which is a bit of a it kind of really appeals to the 14 year old kind of person who wants to be in a band, and they're all like around a campfire playing, and mm. I don't know, it's it's yeah, it's very much part of the grunge mythology that that number and the whole album. Um, I mean, ironically, that song is one of the ones that has nothing to do with Andy Wood's death. I don't think it's just Cornell waffling on about, you know, I think Soundgarden's success and you know concerns about money and people's morals. But um, for me, it was like one of those early ones. Yeah, so it's interesting because there's clearly a, a Seattle scene in which there's it's almost incestuous. Everyone knows each other. They're forming bands left, right, and centre with different people sharing. 
um, different members. And then they're, sorry, that sounded a bit ruder than I intended. Sharing um, of members. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's Sub Pop trying to kind of almost create a marketing vehicle around it uh, and and coming up with the term grunge. And I think uh, in the... In the, in, the, in the podcast you reference, they're shamelessly taking every PR opportunity that comes their way to, to create a marketing event around this scene. Uh, and then totally. you've got other bands in, in, but maybe not in the kind of center of that Seattle scene, but in, on the periphery and in, in, in other states in the US who, who want, to, want a piece of that action. Um, and so like th this whole concept of grunge then became something that the bands themselves railed against and mm. almost didn't like being put in that box yeah absolutely um, i think there's a lot a lot of you know cringing and you know uh apart apart from the the drummer from pearl jam david brizzy's the second drummer he loved it apparently always wanted to get in front of the camera and be all this and that's partly why he fell out with the band <laughs> but um yeah i mean you can understand i guess we're getting that level of attention and all of the negative scrutiny that would have come with it for the bands as if you know as if they made the scene in some artificial way when of course they were just playing in bands and doing mm. their thing i mean that podcast is it was so interesting but also i mean how, how did you feel listening to it as a someone who was in a band and you know tried to make it yeah the the, the podcast Tom's referencing is from what was it called? I built this. Is the series? How did you find it? A colleague of mine forwarded it to it. They forwarded it to me, and it's uh, essentially a podcast about small businesses and people who do startups that work. Um, and so they're interviewing Bruce Pavitt and his. Is it Jonathan? Pon Jonathan. Pon something like that. Yeah, I, I forget his name. Um, Poneman. And it's quite touching because they're both obviously older and they've they've also fallen out mm. and bruce pavitt i think has got parkinson's and that's um, jonathan, jonathan the other one i think it's got is it okay fine yeah. one sorry i beg your pardon um and then and and so that it's almost like they're coming to terms with something that they've built or been a part of and it's quite emotional um how do i feel about it in terms of someone who was in a band I, I don't think they were exploitative necessarily. I think um, I, I felt like I wish I'd been signed to that label. It was more that I was thinking, I just felt sad. I just felt sad for a lost time, you know, uh, when that's what being in a band and a record label was about, you know. I mean, I've always found the US thing amazing, the college radio that is like state level or city level mm. and you you make it at that level. And of course, here we have scenes like there've obviously been great scenes come out of Manchester or Sheffield or Liverpool at different times. But this idea that you wouldn't even be known outside your state or your city unless you tried really hard and, and everything's happening on local radio stations and people are making fanzines and going out there doing limited edition records. And it just reminded me there's this one bit in the podcast where they talk about color, printing the fanzines in black and white and getting all their mates to color them in with crayons. Yeah. Yeah. And that reminded me of when we made those CD covers and we cut out all the pictures from magazines and we sort of made 100 or something CDs of the Kling demo with individualized covers and that kind of stuff, which just surely can't be possible anymore. Like, it, you wouldn't do it. It wouldn't mean anything. And I felt really sad for that. You could... Uh... 
press 10,000 copies of a thing and that be like, that's really great. You know, that's success at our level. Yeah. And the, and the way Sub Pop worked by restricting demand. So we're only going to, you know, print 800 copies of the Soundgarden single. And it really created this buzz. And when we were in a band, that kind of thing was still sort of current. It kind of died in the process of us being in a band with all the stuff going online. We saw that happen. But you can't do that now. And um, obviously... No, you absolutely can't. Digital digital enables so many things. It allows us to be able to get, add the press of a button, listen to a malfunction number, and, and then Wikipedia, who were the members. But... Um, it, what it doesn't allow you to do is create scarcity and create what uh, what was it um, uh, the aura? Who's the man who talks about the aura from the Frankfurt School? Um, oh, right, I can't remember that. That's going back to another time. Uh, don't know. <laughs> Walter yeah, Benjamin? No, that's him. That's Walter Benjamin. Yeah, yeah. Arts in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. The um, yeah, we're we're ultimately now in a in a in a stage where you can't create that FOMO, that sense of scarcity um, through any reproducible art. And like you say, it's amazing. I mean, we wouldn't be able to do this. I'm not going to be all anti-technology. I'm, you know, we wouldn't be able to do this podcast. We wouldn't be able to do so much. But the scene, right? Can you create a scene? Like that, that, that the excitement around a scene and a place is something I feel that is a bit lost. Mm. Who knows? We'll see. Because <laughs> um, you still have live shows and all that. Well, you don't now, but... <laughs> It's just COVID. <laughs> so, um, Charlie, I think your turn. Yeah, it's finally. <laughs> I don't really deserve a, a place on this track list because I think of course listeners are, are beginning to realise that you have um, a much deeper connection and greater knowledge of it. But I, uh-huh. um, I've picked a song that, coincidentally, I didn't know this came off the singles soundtrack, but it's um, in my research one of the ones that stood out as. Just one of the ones I like listening to, and it's by the Screaming Trees, and it's called uh, Nearly Lost You. lovely guitar sound it's got the, the vocal call and the guitar response um 
and it seemed to fit very nicely on the single soundtrack. But we'll go on to singles after this track. The thing that I really yeah. wanted to um, bring out from this is you'll remember from our Drum Heroes episode uh, that we played No One Knows by Queens of the Stone Age. And the connection between this song and that is, of course, Mark Lanigan, the singer of oh, this yeah. song. Oh, yeah, I always forget that. Yeah. Is in Queens of the Stone Age. And um, he's he's actually one of those ones that avoided going down the plug hole of heroin and, um, you know, mental health issues and has had an incredibly, incredibly rich rock career. That's true, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Um... And there's actually another musical connection to Queens of the Stone Age I want to make later on. That's an interesting band, because I feel like that's like... Queens of the Stone Age is obviously later. It's multiple connections to grunge through personnel. It's not a grunge band, but it's a band that wouldn't have existed without grunge, right? And mm. it's um, a brilliant band that builds on the grunge legacy while adding something very new, which not, which not all grunge copy, like more of the direct copycats did. So, I think we could talk about singles a little bit because it is a really interesting moment. Not the film itself, which is not, you know, <laughs> in retrospect. We both viewed it in preparation for this week, and it's not a great film, really, even by romantic comedy standards. But um, what it represented was very significant, and the whole mythologization aspect of the grunge scene in Seattle obviously plays an important role I agree the so we're quite at two different spectrums you've probably seen singles what in the tens of times maybe a hundred <laughs> no 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 no. no I, I would have watched it a lot at a certain period but I, I don't want to give the impression I watched it a hundred times I'm not that sad <laughs> no you, you're still incredibly cool the um, I, I watched it for the first time uh, maybe a night or two ago and so what I knew, the two facts that I knew about uh, singles were that the soundtrack was uh, linked to the Seattle music scene and grunge. And it also had this picture of a long haired Matt Dillon on the on the front cover of, of, of the artwork. And so I was expecting a lot more of a kind of serious movie. And I, I don't know why, but it's a it's a kind of bonehead romantic comedy in in the best kind of style of the genre um and yeah it's 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 fine if you think about it like that it just kind of like blew me away i didn't realize it would be as silly i think i said when i when i texted yeah you. no no and actually i and i can sort of see why why you wouldn't because yeah you kind of think it's going to be there are other films since that have tried to document scenes through a fictional story and they're not they're not like that they 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 do a bit more of really trying to you know get you into the scene and they're a bit more serious but i mean what i find really interesting about singles and this is partly just from the stuff i was just reading today and yesterday in this you know very much um verbatim history of grunge book that i've got kicking around is oh, there's a number of things i mean firstly one thing that's really interesting to me is that it's, nirvana is very absent in that film uh and i think the absence of nirvana is an interesting phenomenon generally. Now, uh, obviously, they're by far the biggest band to come out of grunge. Um, but I, I mean, I, I never really. It was a period where I wouldn't really listen to Nirvana, <laughs> or I, I wasn't really into them. Partly because they were 
mean about Pearl Jam and there was a kind of sense of rivalry. Uh, and I was quite a devoted fan of Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and some of those other bands. But, you know, wh why are they not in singles? Because singles comes out in 1992, so Nevermind has broken. They're the biggest thing in that band. I always assumed maybe that they, they shunned the whole initiative because it's like a Hollywood thing and Nirvana doesn't want to be commercial and all of that. But actually, as far as I could see, the reason they weren't in singles is because singles was actually made a long time before it was released and it sat around. Um, and at the time it was made, which was in early 1991, it was six months before Nevermind came out or Smells Like Teen Spirit. And Nirvana just weren't that important. I mean, they'd put out a record Bleach on Sub Pop, hmm. but then they'd also gone off looking for a major label deal, which is another, you know, really interesting thing. I, which very much upset the sub pop guys. And I think because they were always had this thing about authenticity and bands like Pearl Jam were seen as being more corporate and Vedder wasn't even from Seattle. There's this sense in which the, the Nirvana were the real grunge, the real Seattle. But actually, I think it's not true. And it kind of made mm. me a bit angry. I kind of reverted to my 1992 slash three self of being a bit like, you know, Nirvana gave this impression that they were the real deal, but they weren't from Seattle. They were from... Um, what do you call it? Aberdeen, uh, which was near Seattle. And also they, they bands like Soundgarden Green River, which was precursor to Pearl Jam, were there years before Nirvana. And then, yeah. And then they walked out of Sub Pop, you know, at the point where they could have made that label huge. Yeah, so it I, felt like they, they weren't <laughs> a part of the DNA of the city and the scene. They weren't. Um, and yeah. th and they, at the first opportunity went off to Geffen Records. Yeah. So it, it, I kind of knew some of that stuff because I've watched a lot of films about Nirvana and stuff, but I sort of dig it from that side. And then it made me realize, as I say, that that singles, I, part of the reason Nirvana is absent is because they simply weren't the core of that scene. And at the time it was made, they were, you know, it was about Soundgarden and Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam and their, their precursors. But the great thing, okay, so apart from it being a, a, a kind of twee romantic comedy, and you get the nice setting of Seattle and the, the atmospherics around that, but you also get these wonderful cameos from people from the scene. So, yeah. I mean, they all look beautiful. They don't look like heroin addicts. They don't look troubled. And they're all <laughs> making kind of funny jokes, like blokish. I don't know, maybe it's because they're all just like in the younger period of their life, but um, they don't seem troubled. It seems like quite a fun meathead yeah. kind of scene. Well, I think that's why it's probably not a very authentic. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an idealized version of the scene. But also, the ones who cameo are like Stone Gossard and Jeff Emin and Eddie Vedder, and I, I'm not saying they haven't had problems. And Cornell, who clearly has had problems, but they weren't. You know, Andy Wood had already died of an overdose. Cobain wasn't in it. Lane Staley, Alice in Chains only appears on stage, so maybe the more troubled ones didn't make it in there. But um, but yeah, the, just to go back to your point about expecting it to be more serious. It was also interesting, I read that one of the reasons it didn't come out for so long is because the big film distributors or whoever they were watched the film and saw some of the scenes of bands playing in Seattle and their hearts sank and they were all looking at each other going, oh God, this is a concert film. And they didn't mm. want it to be a concert film because Rattle and Hum, the U2 concert film, had come out and kind of not been a commercial success. And so labels, was, the film distributors were... You know, they wanted it to be like less of a real sceney gig film. So they sat on it for ages. And yeah, anyway, it's quite an interesting story. And it, it revealed quite a lot to me learning about that. So you mentioned Lane Staley. Let's talk yeah. about uh, him and his band 
or the band Alice in Chains? Okay, so straight up, I don't know anything about Alice in Chains. I wasn't a massive particular <laughs> fan of them. I had their albums. I mean, I, you know, I listened to them, but I was, it, was, it wasn't like with Soundgarden or Nirvana. You know, I went to see those bands. I crowd surfed at the Soundgarden gig in the Astoria. It was amazing. Um, 1994. But Alice in Chains were just kind of there. But the reason I put this on is not because I was really into it at the time, although it is on the single soundtrack. Um, it's off their album Dirt, 1992 as well. But just because I just got really into it in like the last week, as I was listening to things I might want to put on, just musically, it's, I think it's a really classic grunge number. And it's something about the interplay of the bass that does this really busy, but grungy sounding kind of picked metallic bass line. It's like this. And then you've got this great, simple guitar part from Jerry Cantrell. And the interplay of the bass and the guitar Later on the song, there's like a little riff playing the bass line. So this is, I put this on for purely musical reasons in a way. The backing vocals as well, that kind of weird, um, I don't know, it's like a kind of whininess, kind of doomful whininess of the Alice in Chains vocal sound, I think is also very influential on Queens of the Stone Age. Okay, so this is Wood. I think the guitar solo is not very interesting, but if you listen to the bass and the chugging guitar underneath, the juxtaposition of it all. Yeah, 
what year are we talking here, Tom? So this is also a tribute to Andy Wood. Oh. Um, and so I think it was probably recorded in 91, maybe. It came out on their album Dirt in 1992. Well, that kind of contradicts the little story I was inventing in my head, where we're now entering a new stage where it was a much more popular scene, and so there was more money being spent, and therefore you get this slicker, bigger production sound. No, but that is true because it is a 1992 album I mean I, I might be wrong about it being recorded in 91 but I think you know, the dividing line in grunge is basically 91 right 91 10 comes out bad motion comes out nevermind comes out the whole thing massively blows up so even though that song appears in singles and was written for Andy Wood it's only recorded for the album maybe later anyway but yeah this is a we're in we're in that world now post 91 so I'm gonna play a song um, that is a little pre-song. It's my my usual cheat. It's nothing from grunge at all. Uh, it's a little number called I Got a Name by Jim Croach. And I'll leave it to play for a bit because it's rather pleasant. But in the chorus, I'm going to alert you to it. Um, well, you were going to say something there, Tom. No, no, I've said enough. <laughs> you might even need to cut bits of my talking out. No, I think it's all useful. We're, we're at the one hour mark, which is usually what we try to aim for as an episode. We're going to go way over. Um, and uh, I don't care. because Feel free to judiciously out. edit. <laughs> for ourselves, but it's also... Um, it's always going to be a long episode, this. Are you going to tell us why we're listening to this song? Did you just hear that riff? Does it come again? It does come again. Annoyingly, I, talk, <laughs> I talked over the bit I was trying to um, play the song for. The reason I'm playing this is because it's thought to have been ripped off by one of the bands in, uh, in this scene. Um, not from Seattle, actually, from San Diego. You'll know who I'm talking about. But, uh, interesting where people get their inspiration from. So let's listen to the chorus and then listen to the bit at the end of the chorus. Yeah, so it's a down, 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 down. That sounds incredibly familiar, but uh, I can't.
doesn't do a lot more than that, but it's quite an atmospheric expression of grunge. Well, yeah, I mean, for me, it's a very controversial choice. I mean, it's funny, I actually, when it came on and you started playing it, I didn't know what it was. And I still don't, I don't actually know what that song is called. It's called Interstate Love Song by the Stone oh, Temple yeah, yeah, Pilots. That sounds familiar. Uh, I know I, I clocked the band, but I, I mean, I never forgave the Stone Temple Pilots for just shamelessly ripping off Pearl Jam. So in the same way that I, I briefly had a kind of ideological problem with Nirvana. See, you're, you're getting it all now. It's all coming out. Um, <laughs> particularly when Stone Temple Pilots came in 92 with Plush, I think it was, that single mm. of their first album. And just the, the, the way that the vocal style was shamelessly ripping on even flow basically, and better generally. I just, I saw them as real wannabe imitators. And I know that they then subsequently became sort of taken quite seriously as a band, but I just wasn't going there. <laughs> I can imagine. And God, what must have you thought when you heard Bush and... Um... <laughs> I mean, by that time uh, I was listening to Britpop anyway, right? Yeah. So it, is it, this is the first one that probably exists outside of Seattle. Because, uh, you know, as we, we said, Smashing Pumpkins doesn't count as grunge. Stone Temple Pilots could equally have been kicked to the side alongside Blind Melon and all these other ones that don't count as grunge. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I honestly like that they, they are grunge because they're so obviously aspiring to sound like grunge, but they're grunge. But they're not like, you know, they're not the Seattle sound. They're not, I guess, the original grunge. And I, I don't know, I just I just see them as total wannabes. I find it hard to see them as anything else. I mean, it's interesting, though, that they're from San Diego because that is where Eddie Vedder's from. So maybe that's just how all people sing in San Diego. <laughs> I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe, now that I'm old. Um, we, um, in preparation for this episode, shared a Wikipedia link that defines what counts as grunge. And then you've got, this, you've got the Seattle grunge and then you've got American grunge. And then you've got kind of other bands from other countries that also considered grunge because of the way they sound and that's I don't know, was it silver chair and bands like moist from canada um oh, good. They're, they're not they're not grunge no. but i think stone temple pilots just makes it in yeah I think, and in 92 to be fair that's still pretty much in the thick of it but um let's just say it's clear who their influences were <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah. so where are, i think this is my last one and so again this is a band that's not strictly grunge in a Seattle sense, but I think it's very hard to deny their grunge uh, because this is a band that was um, certainly the singer was from Los Angeles, I think, and part of that whole scene. And again, somebody who clearly wanted to get in on what was happening in Seattle, but did already have an album out before that, um, but then very much thrust themselves into the Seattle scene. Uh, and the band I'm talking about is Hole. So... I've, I've tried to listen to Hole's first album. Courtney Love herself describes it as unlistenable, and I didn't get very far. But, um, you know, they then, you know, she hooked up with Kirk Cobain. There's all these mythical stories about when they met. Apparently she lied about when they met. A lot of people say, I don't really want to get into the whole Courtney Love thing because she's an extremely divisive, uh, much reviled character by many. And she doesn't seem to have great personal integrity when you weigh up the evidence. But having said that, they were a central band in, in grunge. And when this album, Live Through This, comes out in 94, which seems quite late, right? I don't remember it being late. I think we were all still listening to grunge. And it was just after Kurt Cobain died. So 
you know, Courtney Love was so famous. I mean, they were so famous as a couple. The album hadn't even come out, but I think some of the singles had. This is the first single off that album. And I think it's a great grunge song. Her voice is incredibly powerful. I mean, I wouldn't say it's nice. Uh, and it's just a grunge tune. It's I nearly played it on the Quiet Loud week. Um, I'm not a massive whole fan or anything, but I just thought they deserved an entry. And the sky was made of amethyst And all the stars were just like little fish You should learn when to go You should learn how to say no This is the most ambitious sounding song that we've played tonight. It's the one that wants to to hit the radio waves and, you know, talking about Kurt Cobain. And even though he had his artistic kind of sensibilities, he wanted his music to be heard by many millions more people than some scene at the kind of like northwest corner of the USA. You can hear that in this song. Absolutely. And Courtney Love, unlike Cobain, I don't think ever hit her desire to be massive a massive star and when they came back in 1998 whole with the whole new sound and image and shoot they released celebrity skin you know which was written by partly by billy corgan it's a massive single it's not really grunge anymore but this is brilliant yeah it's it's a good album actually in many ways i think it's got some good classic grunge songs It's also interesting in terms of what you just said. Nirvana and Hole are the two bands in grunge, although not from Seattle, that went from having a first album that really just wasn't very good. <laughs> like the production is kind of not brilliant. The songwriting's half formed in the first Nirvana album, I think, even though it's got good moments. And to making these incredibly polished, massive, you know, second albums. Whereas like bands like Soundgarden, they kind of honed their sound more gradually over four albums. Pearl Jam first album, they'd already done something quite commercial sounding with Mother Love Boat. But yeah, I mean the Kurt and Courtney just went from being kind of punk bands to these fucking massive, you know, sounds. Another thing that we touched on earlier, and that's the kind of, I guess the mental health side of this, 
uh, it would it would be kind of foolish to talk about grunge without saying that you know Scott Weiland from Stone Temple Pilots dead heroin overdose Chris Cornell dead um, Lane Staley dead heroin yeah um, we've talked about Andy Wood we talked about uh, that's a that's a not a very good hit rate um I feel bad for, for people yeah i feel bad but, for celebrating but, it now <laughs> it's it, scrap this episode it's weird Come on. because this is a kind of happy form of music for us we looking back on it nostalgically but obviously whether it was i like to think it's it's, it's more like lifestyle that that saw the demise of these people rather than actually any kind of introversion or introspection that they forced themselves to go through. Potentially Cobain is the one exception. Um, yeah. I, but I, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I, it's, 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 it would be a bit sad in a way to think, Oh, we shouldn't, you know, enjoy almost this music because these tortured people were all messed up and died of heroin overdoses. Many of them did, but also of course, once something is there in a scene and becomes normalized, you know, people, mm get drawn into it. So like you say, I think it was partly probably that, uh, you know, there must've been some people who had serious problems, but also unfortunately it was like, I guess it was like a poison that got into that music scene and it was a very tight knit scene. Hmm. The reason I mention it is because it informs my last choice. Bizarrely, it's a song Chris Cornell wrote about the fact that you can be doing fine and then just suddenly the black dog can get you um, and you can feel the weight of depression or the weight of um, mental anxiety or mental torture come and grab you at any moment. And the anxiety that knowing that that, that, that that's just around the corner presents. Um, however, the song I love because I think it's got a groove. Yeah, that is um, that's it's quite funky in a way. Um, I think the time signature is in 6-4, although the, the drum plays quite a straight four uh, rhythm. Um, and so there's that that kind of... And then there's also the ooze in the middle eight. I think Chris Cornell does very well. So um, this is Fell on Black Days by Soundgarden.
this is off of the massive Super Unknown 1994, and we're getting to the arse end of the scene now. Um, but this is a massive album. Black Old Sun is the big one off it, and then you've got Spoon Man, which is another of the big tracks. This was my personal favourite. Yeah, it's a great song. It's the right choice, I reckon. Uh, I remember listening to this in um, 1994 from my, uh, as a boarding school in South Africa. And so obviously uh, you have your dormitories where you sleep and then you had our little study rooms that you shared between one other person and yourself uh, where you go and do your homework in the evenings. And then by that stage I was old enough to kind of listen to albums. Um, and this was the one I used to listen to after Lights Out. That's good. So we were listening to some of the same stuff at that time. Yes, but I just didn't have any of the context of Temple of the Dog, uh, Mother Love Bone, you know, the first Soundgarden albums, or the the three that preceded this. It doesn't matter though. I quite like, you know, that's as we we spoke in an earlier episode how we kind of came came from like a very different part of the world, listening to different music, but Soundgarden was probably one of the few things we were both certain to be listening to in 94. Yeah, whereas this was the big commercial hit for you, uh, this was my my version of discovering an indie album that no one else had. back to the groove here we've heard it um it's lovely and um it is a groove it, yeah it's a word it's not a word you hear often these days um it's it's incredibly sad though just thinking about chris cornell because i don't i was just trying to recall it was only a few years ago it was i think a suicide but wasn't it slightly ambiguous as to whether it was a suicide it wasn't heroin he didn't seem screwed up, and I mean, going back to the singles, um, when he takes off his shirt, the man is a healthy-looking individual. He doesn't look—he <laughs> doesn't look troubled. He looks quite muscular and very, very potent and virile. And you know, his voice speaks to someone who's got so much energy and life. But he's—he obviously had mental health issues. Yeah, I mean, he always embraced the like massive, like the rock god thing. And when Mudhoney wrote that song, "Overblown," about the Seattle scene for the single soundtrack it was kind of ironic apparently it was it was a kind of a bit of a uh you know poking fun at cornell because there's some reference to like you know someone being on stage with their shirt off and <laughs> yeah i mean he he did he seemed like one of the more you know on top of everything kind of guys you know everyone around him was like dying in a heroin addict i don't think he he was a heroin addict but he did have struggles with depression and loads of prescription drugs and yeah, it's very sad, but a fitting end, unfortunately. 
Not his death. Do you mean the song to the? Is no, no, yeah, yeah. Sorry, a fitting, a fitting end to the. Uh, although in a way, it was, it was a fitting end to his life, and on another level. But um, yeah, no, uh, a fitting end to the episode, really, to end with that song. Yeah. So, like all of these, it feels like we could have just done another two or three rounds of this and done all manner of different soundtracks. But hopefully, some of the other stuff in grunge will feed its way into other episodes. Yeah. Not sure least because we managed to exclude Pearl Jam and Nirvana. And, yeah. um Well, we now realise that we hate Nirvana. <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> yeah. Now, I've been through a journey with Nirvana of like of hating them and then like realising they were great and loving them for ages. And now I'm just a bit like, ooh, just withdrawing a little, just a little bit of my mm. respect there. Mm. Well, Kurt will be turning ever so slightly. What are we going to play from ourselves and why? Ah, oh, do you know what? This is the first episode where I'd completely forgotten that we're supposed to end with one of our own songs. Mm. So I'm hoping you've got one lined up. Um, I do. I think it's mainly because of the guitar. I don't think any listener would go, "Ooh, that's a grunge song," when they um, when they hear this. Yeah, I mean, we we didn't talk extensively about this. We don't really have any grunge songs, but obviously it was a, an influence on several of us, uh, certainly including myself. But I, I think I liked to imagine that this song would have been listened to and enjoyed by the kind of people you know like when i was 14 and i was hearing those songs off the off the big 1991 grunge albums somehow equivalent in driving guitars and yeah well we did have one of those people from the scene come in and actually listen to our band at one point you do remember that yeah so are you talking about dave hillis Yes. So picture the scene, dear listeners. We're in the mid two thousands, early two thousands. Ruth Studios, Old Street, London. Um, our manager at the time, Simon White, who we've talked about, said, "Oh, um, I know this guy, Dave Hillis. He's in town." Tom goes, "Oh, I've seen his name on a countless number of grunge albums, particularly related to Pearl Jam." Yeah, I mean specifically, he was an engineer on Ten first Pearl Jam album. So Dave Hillis comes down and listens to us record. No, not record, rehearse. And we play a bunch of songs to him. I don't know. but And then we went to the pub with him. I think we played about two or three songs, one of which was Musical Save You, which he was like, hey, Musical (laughs) Saviour, that's a hit, man. Maybe we should have played Musical Saviour. Yeah, there's, there's two things I remember about Dave Hillis. One, I mean, obviously, other than him being an engineer on 10. One is that he said he liked Musical Saviour. And the other is that he said, my girlfriend's touring with Courtney Love. <laughs> Courtney. I think he had like a, a kind of Canadian accent. I'm sure that wasn't very good. But yeah, his girlfriend was on tour with Courtney Love at the time. Yeah, He seemed lovely and nonplussed by our music. Um, so that was a slight diversion. We think, or you hope, that this song would have found a place in the hearts of the Seattle music crew. It's called While We're Still Alive. Meeting down, swelling away, silence sweeping beneath your skin. 
interesting there's a, there's more grunge influence in there than perhaps i thought because we we picked this song fairly haphazardly but certainly with the guitar solo for example like doing that um just that kind of really basic playing the tune the vocal melody was you know kurt cobain does that unlike come as you are for example mm-hmm. um, so if, if if this if while we're still alive was a, a band or a group of mates trying to get into a grunge club in Seattle in 1991. Um, I think Bouncer would say, uh, 
drums, bass, you can come in. Guitar, yes, you can come in. You can maybe be a VIP, but actually uh, synths and keyboards and vocals, you can fuck off. You're not coming in. <laughs> come say, you need to sing that two octaves higher. I was trying to imagine like Chris Cornell, what he would do. But well, no, I'm still um... alive! <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, it's a hybrid kind of thing. And also I think the driving bit at the end, you know, uh, I like the end of that song. It's going to and it extends and it's like a real momentum and energy, which I think, you know, a song like Rearview Mirror by Pearl Jam obviously does that extremely well. So there'll be people in our band who played on that song who won't think of it in terms of grunge. Uh, what do we need to say about While We're Still Alive? Um, it, it's one of many songs that come from your original penning that was then adapted and um you know, embellished slightly by the full band, but it is a song you wrote individually. What, what what was the kind of thing apart from the obvious that inspired it? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly I don't want to give anyone the impression it was a grunge song or intended to be, but like I suppose it, it yeah had had those those influences on my writing are there, and it's actually in in a way it does seem quite fitting that it's called While We're Still Alive. You know, we've been talking about all this death in the grunge scene and it was a just kind of a, a seize the day carpe diem kind of a song that came at a certain point in our band's career as well where you know things have been happening but not quite the pace we wanted to um but we still had this passion to uh, to make it happen mm. so yeah i kind of i don't know i don't know what what more there is to really say apart from the fact that weirdly we recorded it and it didn't end up on either of our albums although we recorded it around the time of the second album and i don't really know why it didn't end up on that album do you yeah i'm kind of glad it didn't but i think yeah so um uh mental notes was mopping up some of the songs that we'd recorded over or had written over a long period of time and laughter in the dark was consolidating some writing over a you know, the later part, and it just fell between two stools, and I'm quite glad it did. Uh, it's it's in its own little bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, it's nice to have an opportunity to, to, to play it on a podcast. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll have other episodes that touch on grunge, and maybe we'll find some other of those influences in there. When we do the obscure specialist grunge episode, Hater, Mad Season, Mike McCready and Lane Staley's collaboration, bit of a smack fest, you know, we could do that. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about the Seattle Supersonics, the early days of Microsoft. Um, Brad. Others, yeah. Brad. Brad's good. <laughs> we don't have time. Tom, say goodnight to the good listeners. Good night, everybody. Good night. It was a pleasure. <laughs> Ciao.